Thanks, Rachel. If you want to um, pull out your outlines, you'll see a little outline there. It'll help you get through uh, tonight's talk as we think through what God has said to us. Uh, I I love uh, the book of John. I love it because there's just something special about what God has to say to us and the way he speaks through John. And so tonight, uh, why don't we ask God to help us to understand what he has to say? Because he promises that his word never returns empty. So let's ask God to do that by his spirit through his word to show us what he has to say. Father God, tonight as we come to your word, as we have just heard your word spoken through the Apostle John, we ask that you would capture us by it. That we would hear these not just as words written long ago, but as your word to us. We ask that tonight through your spirit you might capture us and change us. That we might see your love and your goodness in your Son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's something really attractive about those with extraordinary talent. Have you noticed that? Like Google is full, not not just Google, but YouTube is full of people that do amazing stuff, right? You can spend a long time just looking at videos. Have you ever been caught in that cycle of looking at amazing people? People are amazing one and people are amazing two and people are amazing 427. (laughs) Sometimes we get sucked into watching people do amazing stuff. There's something that's attractive. People jumping push bikes over helicopters, you know, people kind of skiing down huge mountains with an avalanche chasing behind them, scaling tall buildings, juggling chainsaws, right? There's people doing all sorts of stuff and we love to watch. We love to look at it. We get sucked in. Then there's those people with just different types of talent, talent that comes in ideas like a TED talk. And we want to watch. We want to hear what they have to say and the way they're thinking. People who have inventions and they put on Kickstarter and you're like, yeah, I want that. That's the best thing ever. I'm going to invest and you're there. Right? Is this ringing true for you? You feel kind of sucked into these areas? People who speak and have sort of knowledge. And then, and then there's the people who, who can sing and play music. Right? And we, just, we pay lots of money to go and hear them do it. We go to concerts. And we, we want to be there because there's something almost magnetic about those with extraordinary talent. And so when we see someone or hear of someone with extraordinary talent, we're kind of drawn toward them. That's how clickbait advertising works, right? Have you been there and they keep putting stuff up? Let me show you. Does anyone here tonight have an interest in wood chopping? Real real life, show of hands. I was like, oh, good work. This is great. Here's your man, another one down here, the wood choppers. Okay. But if I tell you there's this video of the best wood chopper in the world, and actually this guy is phenomenal, how many people now want to go see it? Show of hands. Look at that. You just got clickbaited, all of you. <laughs> You're sucked in by the extraordinary. Really, a wood chopper? Like, do I really need to see the best wood chopper in the world? Yes, because <laughs> they're the best. But what we're going to see tonight if there is, is that there is something far more extraordinary, far more magnetic than all the wood choppers and helicopter jumpers in the whole world, and his name is Jesus. And in fact, people from throughout all of human history have seen something special about him. You know, in 2013, uh, some secular researchers, Professor Skinner and Ward, did a study on a mathematical calculation to work out who from human history has been the most influential. Who's had the greatest influence on the Western world that, that we know of? And their calculation, with all the fancy numbers and the thing that kind of came out in it, Cambridge University Press was that the most influential person in human history was a guy from Nazareth called Jesus. That he has actually been the most influential person in human history. There's something about him that draws people in, something magnetic. But the question I want us to ask tonight is why? Why are people sucked in and and kind of drawn toward Jesus? What's so special about him? Now, I take it you're here tonight because there is something about Jesus that... Just drawing you in. Maybe you're checking it out. Maybe you're dipping your toe in and you're thinking through who is this guy. Maybe you've been convinced that he is someone and you're like, I'm all in. But what is it that's so special about him that makes so many people intrigued by him? Well, the answer that we're going to see is not just some general interest fact. You know, well, let's give you 10 reasons why Jesus is the most influential person in human history. And off we go. Reason number one, right? It's not that. I want to put it to you that the reason Jesus is so intriguing 
is because he says and does something that involves you. He actually does something that involves you, that is, that is relevant to you. Come with me. John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Now, what we have in front of us here tonight in this, this, this letter from John, this gospel, this news, is an eyewitness account from the first century AD from one of Jesus' closest friends. An account of who Jesus is and what he's done and why he's important, outlining the events surrounding the person of Jesus. And John thinks it's important at this point to introduce us to a man named Nicodemus. Now, what we know about him is he's a Pharisee. That meant he's from a kind of conservative branch of first century Judaism. He's a Jew. Uh, They were known and largely respected in the community uh, for their their, uh, discipline and their good deeds. They had a kind of orthodoxy about them that people like these guys are kind of legit. They're not some way out cult, right? They're they're kind of legit. But on top of his religious affiliation, we're told he was a ruler of the Jews politically. Politically. That means he was a member of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was the the top council of of 72 or 70 people that ruled the country under the Roman government. So Nicodemus, he's he's pretty high. He's got some kind of political pipes. He's, He's one of these guys that is here, that is influential in this Jewish community, but it doesn't stop there. In verse 10, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. Now, our translation has a teacher, but the original has the teacher. He's not just any teacher. Jesus calls him the teacher. Like he's the man. When it comes to the teachers of Israel, he's the kingpin, the top, the the professor of divinity of all the nation. He is the the theological kind of propeller head. There you go. He's so connected in his community politically. He's learned. He's theologically up there. And later on, we're going to see in the Gospel of John that he's probably connected with some wealth. This is an important guy that's come to Jesus. This is a pretty important guy. The question that's on everyone's lips at this point as you get to the passage and you see these things is why? Why is Nicodemus, this important man in Jewish culture, in in, in the society of a time, going to a Galilean carpenter? Chapter 3, verse 2. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, teacher, We know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. The socially respected, politically corrected, sort of politically connected and corrected, uh, the learned teacher of Israel has been amazed at the things Jesus had done. He'd seen the video, Jesus is amazing. And he'd seen kind of what had been going on, and he'd come to the conclusion, there's something about this Jesus, something special. God was with him. And so he comes out to see this Jesus. Now, it's not just Christians that say something special went on about uh, this man, Jesus. You see, throughout human history, people, even of the time, who, who weren't Christians, writing down things that say Jesus is worth listening to because, well, he did some crazy stuff. He, he's worth looking at. He's amazing. For instance, uh, in 110 AD, a guy by the name of Pliny wrote a letter to the Emperor Trojan, Trajan, and he asked the Emperor, should I keep executing followers of Jesus? And that's basically the letter. He's saying, should I keep killing them? Because they're here, and, and this is what he says, it's on the screen. The sum and substance of their fault, Christians, or error, had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as God. Here you have a non-Christian who's trying to kill people, kill Christians, actually saying that what they were doing was they were singing to Jesus and treating him as God. There's a little bit of history for you. I'll show you another one, Josephus. He's a military general, a historian, lived around AD 37 to 100. He says this, that Jesus performed baffling deeds. Have a look. About this time, there lived a wise man, Jesus if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds. 
and was a teacher of such people as accepted the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. Here you have someone who does not think Jesus is God's promised king. He doesn't think he's the Messiah, but he is recording in history that he did some crazy stuff. There's something going on about this person of Jesus that it's surprising and worth being drawn towards. As we read the accounts of the New Testament, which um, ancient historians tell us a really helpful uh, picture and a strong picture of the first century AD. So we read read the accounts of the Gospels. We see Jesus heal the sick. We see him raise the dead and feed thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Historically, there is no doubt that Jesus had an impact on the first century. Just, there's no doubt. You can't say, nah, it didn't really happen. It just, you just can't. These fingerprints are all, all over the writings that exist. But with Jesus, there's actually something bigger going on than just these signs. Just these amazing things. And what he has to say to Nicodemus concerns him. What he has to say to Nicodemus isn't just some general thing. It concerns Nicodemus' own personal future. Because Jesus has something personal to say. Something personal that Nicodemus is not really ready for. Have you ever had that moment in life where... You, you receive something, it might be an email or a letter, and you think it's just one of those general like spam things that people just send out to everyone, and you're just one of a billion people that get the, the email, and you're kind of like, blah, blah, whatever, but then you get to a part of it, and you realize it's directly for you. Have you ever had that happen to you, where you're like, whoa, they're, they're talking to me right now? About a year ago, I got an email from our bank, ASB, thank you, you might get emails occasionally, uh, and they, they sent it to me, but they sent me this email, and I'll show you it, here's, here's the first picture. Take, come with a journey. Oh, look at that. You can take the questions thing. Like, you can text questions to that if you want to, by the way. It's a great number. You can say hello world to us. Um, so I got this email and it says, hey, Rowan, uh, it may not be Amy's special day just yet. It was just before her birthday. I'm like, whoa, they know her birthday. It's a bit creepy. Um, <laughs> Cash couldn't wait to wish her a happy birthday. He's like the little elephant thing that kind of, they can, they can put money in their account and see where it's at. And I'm like, blah, blah, there we go. Let's get started. And they want to help me try and help Amy, who's kind of at this point six, to work out how to kind of manage her money. Right, so then I scroll down and I get this picture. I'm like, blah, blah, normal email. And then I see some kid down the bottom of the email. I'm like, that kid looks like Amy. <laughs> What's that video? Like, it looks like her. So then I click on the video. And what is this? And it is Amy. <laughs> I'm like, whoa! I'm, they're asking me to go and watch a video on a kid telling me how to help my kid manage money. But it is my kid telling me how to make my kid manage money. <laughs> Suddenly, I'm like, what happened here? This got real personal. (laughs) Like, are they stalking me? Then I remembered that our neighbor had asked us to go do this this video shoot. And and so our kids had gone along for ASB. And anyway, it had obviously come out and they'd targeted me. So it was all legit. They hadn't stalked me. But there you go. I I got the email. (laughs) Well, that's exactly what happens to Nicodemus. He gets a computer, he sits down, (laughs) he goes to Jesus, expecting some general things to know about him, and gets confronted personally. Something personal comes to him. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus replied, remember something amazing, God must be with you, right? Jesus says, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You're like, what? What? Unless someone is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 7, do not be amazed that I told you, you must be born again. (gasps) There it is. Jesus has something to say to this leader of Israel that's reached out and says, this is for you. He gets personal with Nicodemus. Now, I imagine Nicodemus thought he had life pretty much sorted. He's going along, he's a leader, he knows lots about the Bible, and he's, he's faith, he's at the top of his game. But John gives us a hint at the start of this chapter that not everything is okay. He tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. I don't know if you noticed that. Why did John put in the detail that he came at night? First reason, it's probably because he did. (laughs) He came at night. But why record that? Like this is is the gospel about Jesus. Why record that he came at night? Was 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 he afraid? 
Was he afraid that others would see him going to a Galilean carpenter? I don't think so. He was at the top of his game. He's not afraid to go anywhere. But throughout John, what we see is there's a theme of darkness and light. If you've been with us from the beginning, you would have seen that, that John keeps talking about the one who is light, the word. And he spoke into the darkness. And darkness is this picture of people who, who are not trusting God and not in the light, who don't understand what God has done and have not yet realized that they need help. They're people who are, like all of us have been, living short of God and falling short of his wonderful light. And what we have here in this passage is someone coming out in the darkness. John's pitched it that way, showing us that Nicodemus somehow deep inside probably recognizes there's something not quite right. There's something more to be known about this God. And maybe Jesus, this special guy who's come from God, maybe he has more that can help him. Maybe there's some issues that he still has that he hasn't got sorted yet. And my hunch is that deep down, we're all a little like that. We all know that, well, there is darkness in us. We don't do what we ought to do all the time. We don't even do what we think we should do, let alone what God wants us to do. We recognize that we, we don't always live God's way. There's a brokenness about us. We don't have life sorted. And the reality of, of death that comes before us is something that hits all of us. And, and we don't want, there's a great darkness looming over everyone and perhaps you have at some point in your life, or maybe it's tonight, been searching for the light, the truth, God's word to you. Perhaps you would like God to step out and say, hey, look, I have something to say to you. Well, tonight he's going to do that. Jesus looks at Nicodemus. Nicodemus sees something special about Jesus. But Jesus says, you actually don't see a thing. You see some miracles and some outer things, but you don't see what's really going on. And you know what? That might be us as well. You might have come along tonight thinking, look, there's something special about Jesus. He's a good moral teacher. He's got some things to tell me about life. He's been influential in the world. And you're like, that's cool. There's all this stuff. But you've never seen what he has to do with you. What he's saying to you. Jesus says to Nicodemus on that night, the only way you can see in this darkness, the only way you can get a grasp of God and the kingdom that God is bringing in, which you believe in and you want access to, the future, the only way you can do that is if you are born again. Now you hear that word born again, and I just think American accent straight away. You're going to be born again. I don't know why. <laughs> Sorry, Americans. I love you. You know, uh, We all have accents, me included. Uh, you do too. Just remember that. But it's just this kind of idea. What is a born-again Christian? You hear people say, are you a born-again Christian? Like, what? This comes from this passage. It's just an odd concept. Born again. You're like, okay, let me think through that. Do I want to be born again? I'm like, no. <laughs> I was there at the birth of all, three, all four of our kids. <laughs> and, and like, it's not pretty. <laughs> I, I, there's no way I'm getting there. Anyway, it's not going to happen. <laughs> and that's exactly how Nicodemus replies. Look at verse 4, chapter 3. Can anyone be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter a mother's womb a second time and be born? Don't think I'm weird. Nicodemus says it, right? So Jesus explains what he means by that. He unpacks it more. Look at verse 5. Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, if I'm honest at this point, I sit here and I go, okay, that didn't help. <laughs> I, you know, I'd love a little bit more info here. Uh, what do you mean born again, water and spirit? What is that? And over the generations, people have understood this verse in many different ways. Some people go water and the spirit. Uh, water is like the natural birth. So when the waters break and then the baby comes out, that, that's kind of just you're born naturally. But then you need to be born again a second time spiritually. So there's the, the, the natural and then the spiritual. But I don't think that's what it means. I don't think he's focusing on two different births. He's talking about something else. And if you compare uh, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 5 to chapter 3, verse 3, you can see there's a helpful comparison. Have a look at them on the screen. I've just summarized it. In verse 3, he says, No one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. And in verse 5, he says, No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Do you see their parallels? Uh, entering the kingdom and seeing the kingdom, well, entering is just a little bit bigger than seeing. You see it, and then entering, you're actually going in. They're parallels. No one can see the kingdom of God 
God's kingdom fully come. No one can enter the, the, the phase when God will be ruling the world uh, with his promised king over it without being born again. And the born again is paralleled with born of water and the spirit. You see how the two are coming together? And that's why they can't be talking about separate things. Being born again means being born of water and the spirit. So what does that mean? <laughs> okay, they're the same thing. Being born again means born of water and the spirit. Well, to us, it doesn't mean much. But to the teacher in Israel, the one who could probably recite the whole Old Testament, who would have learned it and noted the, the, the kind of professor of theology of all of Israel, it should mean something. So the question becomes, where does the Bible talk about new birth? Where does the Bible talk about this idea? Do you know what the short answer is? It doesn't. The Old Testament doesn't really talk about this idea of new birth anywhere. But the idea of water and spirit, that's not something new. That was something that was promised. Something promised. Nicodemus should have been able to pick up the sort of language that Jesus was using here because he was the teacher in Israel. He, he kind of had that word of God in his head of the Old Testament. And there are a number of passages in the Old Testament that talk about water and the Spirit. But one of the most striking ones is found by, in the pages of an Old Testament prophet named Ezekiel. Now, this is a great passage. It's really helpful to turn this. So if you've got your Bible or, or, or your digital device, flick it open and turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. You're going to find this so you can mark it. You can see this is where it's coming from. This is so important. Because in Ezekiel 36, if you need to use the index, it's okay. It's fine. Uh, Ezekiel 36, God promises a time when he'll make a new covenant, a new arrangement, a new agreement with his people through water and the Spirit. Now, as you're flicking there, I want to tell you a little bit about biblical history so we can understand this. Throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament story, there are a number of covenants, agreements. There's one early on with a guy called Abram, who becomes Abraham. God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a land that will be your own and make you into your own people. And through you, Abraham, all nations will be blessed. And so he calls him, not just, he calls him the father of many nations. Big daddy, right? That's him. So there's this, there's this promise God makes. Nothing to do with Abram. He didn't have any kind of goodness going on about him. God just says, you know what? I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to do this. And then we see as we go on a little further, more promises that God makes. He, he makes one um, with Moses when he gives the law on, on Mount Sinai after they've come out of, of the Exodus in Egypt. And he promises that you are my people. I've saved you. So this is how you're to live. And he makes another agreement, another covenant then. Then a little bit later when they're in the promised land and, and then he puts in King David, the king after God's own heart. God says to David, I promise that your son will rule on the throne forever. A son of yours will rule, not just, not just build a house for, for, for God, but will be the ruler of the kingdom that comes forever. He will, he will rule an everlasting kingdom. What he means by that is a kingdom that has no death. A kingdom where, where God is in control and God is the one who, who will put things right as they finally should be with people in right relationship with God. He says to David, that will happen through a son of yours. And so all the Jews have been waiting for the Davidic son of David. That's what Davidic means, of David. They've been waiting for this son of David who will come in this agreement. And when you flick further forward to the prophets, because what happens is Israel stuff up as they normally do, as we normally do. Uh, they get booted out of the land, then they're not in the land anymore, and they're longing for the day they can get back in and kind of see these promises of God come back together. And Ezekiel comes up and says some crazy stuff. But he says here something really, really important. He says there is a time coming when a new covenant will come, a new promise, a new agreement. It's in line with all the others but it's new. Have a look at verse 24. Highlight it with your pen, circle it, do whatever you do, put a little you know, sign here, sticker in, whatever. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols and I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will 
place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your fathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. What a promise. This sounds awesome. For so long, Israel have been trying to live the right way and worked out they've just been scurrying around in the darkness. They haven't been able to put God first or right. And so they've, they've continued to reject God and they've recognized that their hearts are hard and stubborn. But God says, I'll give you new hearts. I will wash you clean with water and I'll place my spirit in you. There is water and spirit together. I will sprinkle your hearts with clean water. There is a day coming that God will make broken people new again by the work of his spirit and cleanse them. So whatever else new birth is, to the ears of Nicodemus, Jesus is saying it's this, it's, it's, it's the promise of a new covenant. A new agreement from God that will, will see you change from people who are scurrying in the darkness to people who are living in my light and entering into my kingdom and live forever with the promises that I've given in their fullness. That's what Jesus means by new birth. He's talking about Ezekiel and the promise that happened there. And he's applying it and saying, do you know what? Nicodemus, you kingpin ruler of all of Israel, you need a fresh start. You need a new heart. You need to be cleansed of your sin. And I am bringing that in. How great it is to hear the word of God. How great it is to see his light that pulls us out of the darkness and shows us how we ought to live. That's what being born again is. It's a new start in right relationship with God, being part of God's kingdom forever. So then how is it that someone can be born again? How how, how do we do this? You can imagine Nicodemus is like, okay, what, what, what does this look like? How can someone have a new heart? Well, Jesus tells us, it's kind of like what happened to Israel when they came out of the Exodus. He brings us back again to the Old Testament that Nicodemus should have known. You see, uh, God's people had these promises. Uh, Joseph had kind of taken uh, Jacob and the sons to to Israel because there was food there at the end of of Genesis. They'd be there in Israel. The Pharaoh loved them. He was blessed. Everything went great. Uh, They were growing and growing. Then a new Pharaoh came. And then for 400 years, Israel ended up in slavery in Egypt. It was horrible. They were groaning and crying and calling out to God. What about this promise you made to Abram? We're not really loving it now. And it just got harder and harder until God finally answered their prayers. 400 years of slavery and he said, I'm taking you out. And he sent the plagues on Israel and Pharaoh kept getting judged to say, you're not king. God is king. You can't keep my people. God is the king over all. He took them through the Red Sea and they went across on dry land and God brought the Red Sea in over on Pharaoh's army and wiped them all out behind. God saved Israel as he's taking them towards the promised land. They're in the desert and they're kind of there for a bit and it's taking longer and they kind of, they do what we always do. You know, when you're in the back of the car, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Oh, this is death. You know, we're even like that. Um, I took a, a long flight recently. I'm like, man, this is long. Like it was 15 hours in a plane, right? But I'm like, imagine how long it would take for me to walk. Well, firstly, I can't walk on water. And so to kind of get to Dubai, would have been, it's just not going to happen. Uh, and so we complain so much because that is what we are like. We have people scurrying around in the darkness. And Israel complained to God. And God said, you know what? You need to recognize who I am. If you want to go back to Egypt, which is what they wanted to do. Like we have way better food back there. If you, if you want to do that, you can go. But I'm going to give you a taste of what that looks like. Rejecting me, the life-giving God. And so he sent amongst Israel at this particular point in Numbers 21, snakes. Now, I know Kiwis hate snakes. As Australians have kind of grown up uh, with snakes. But snakes, there's something wrong about them. I don't know. They're slimy and venomy. But they weren't nice snakes, just like in the Garden of Eden, right? Not a nice snake. Uh, These were snakes that came through and bit people and they died. And so God judged Israel. God said, you know what? You want to reject me? You want to live your own way without me? You think you don't need me? Let me show you what will happen. Snakes come through. They start dropping like dead people bitten by snakes. (laughs) And so there they are, recognizing that God's wrath is on them. And they've been complaining and whinging. Uh, And then God, out of his complete love for his people, says, but it's okay. Look at Numbers 21 verse 8. It's on the screen. 
The Lord said to Moses, okay, make a snake image and mount it on a pole. Whenever anyone who is bitten looks at this snake image on the pole, he will recover. So Moses goes, okay. He makes a bronze snake, mounts it on a pole. And then whenever someone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, so bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. God didn't take away the reality of death that was amongst them. He just said, if you want life, you need to look to my way of life. You need to look that I am the one that can heal you from this snake. And that's what happened. And Israel looked to this image of a snake raised up and remembered, ah, that's right. God is the God of life. I deserve death because I've been scurrying around in the darkness. And so Jesus uses this image to point to something even more amazing than Nicodemus has ever seen. He wants to show you and me and Nicodemus tonight something amazing about Jesus. And it's got something to do with you. John chapter 3, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Do you see what Jesus did just then? Nicodemus comes scurrying around in the darkness. There's something special about Jesus. Jesus says, you haven't seen nothing yet. I'm actually bringing new life. The the, the full covenant of, of Ezekiel 36 and 37. And the way to enter that is to look to me. Just as the way to be saved from death when the snakes came through was to look to God's promised sign of salvation. The way to escape the darkness of your rebellion with God is the way that God diverts the punishment of death that we all deserve. That's what happened in Israel as they looked to that snake. But looking to Jesus doesn't just save us from the death of a snake bite. It saves us from what we deserve, eternal death, from rejecting the God who made us. You say to the God who gives life, who sustains your life, I don't want you anymore, I don't, I don't need you, I'm kind of cool, you know, n- no worries, but I, I don't need you. God says, okay, and that's what you deserve, God's punishment on us for rejecting him. But Jesus says, if you look to the one who will be lifted up, which is him as he dies and rises again, And he goes on to say, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Nicodemus gets super personal. Sorry, Jesus gets super personal with Nicodemus. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is saying, I'm like the bronze snake. Look to me and you'll live. You need to look to me in order to live. And this passage has got a, a really personal aspect for me. So when I was 15, um, one day at school as a 15-year-old, I looked at the sun, as you do, although you're not supposed to. Um, I, I looked at the sun, and you know, sometimes when you look at a really bright light, it stays in your eye for a while. I looked at the sun like that, and then I looked away, and the kind of bright light kept growing. I didn't see Jesus' face or anything crazy like that, but it just... It just took over half my vision. It was weird. It was half my vision, like, you know, out of, you can see out of the other eye. It wasn't just out of one eye. It was like, there's something weird happening. All the medical people are going, well, that's bad, man. <laughs> then I lost kind of feeling. and I had this tingliness over one side of my body. And I'm like, this doesn't feel right at all. And I, I, I didn't feel great. Uh, I kind of went home from school. I told mum what happened. Mum's like, you're going to a doctor. I'm like, oh, I feel all right now. I'm Okay. <laughs> Off we go to the doctor, because like mum's always right. So we go to the doctor. The doctor said, look, that can happen with migraines. That, that can kind of go on where you lose some vision and feel tingly, but it's always great to check. So let's get you booked in for a CAT scan, which is where they scan your brain. I don't know why. It's called CAT. Someone can tell me later. But I'm like, I hope there's not a cat in there. It's going to be bad if there is. Anyway, so they do this CAT scan. Sorry, it's a dad joke. I've got four kids. They do the scan and the doctor comes back and says, actually, there's part of uh, a ventricle, a place that produces fluid in your brain that's twice the size that it should be. And it's putting pressure on the rest of your brain. You need to go to hospital today. And I was like, whoa. And so off I go to hospital and and there I'm sitting there and they're doing some tests and some more scans and these things called an MRI and seeing they couldn't work out exactly what the problem was. And so they say to me, look, what we think we need to do is drill a hole in your head, go to the center of your brain and clear. We think there's a, there's a membrane of, of kind of something blocking the drainage part of it. We don't know if it's not that we'll work it out when we're in there. (laughs) Not great words when you're 15 and going, okay. Um, I'm like, what happens if you don't do this? And like, well, probably die 
I'm like, all right, well, that's a good option. I don't want to die. So I remember lying on the gurney in just outside the operating theatre, uh, and I'd grown up trusting Jesus. My parents had become Christians just after I was born, and I'd grown up knowing this verse, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believed in him will not perish but have eternal life. And I'm lying on this gurney, and, and they walk through with their kind of, you know, their, their, their hat things they have on, and their funny scrub shoes, and all that sort of weirdness. You're like, you guys look funny. And as they open the door, I see into the operating theater the drill that they're about to drill into my head. And this moment where I'm like, okay, this is real. Uh, there's a sense where I don't know what's going to happen. And I remember lying there with an absolute sense of peace. Because I knew that if I died on that table for whatever reason, that my hope was in Jesus. That Jesus had died in my place and that God had raised him from life. And I believed that he had taken the penalty that I deserved. And so that if I should face death, I knew I would be forgiven for God had given up his own son for me. Friends, what Jesus says to us here in this passage is amazing. He's saying that death is not your end if you trust in Jesus. That you can have life beyond death. He solves the world's biggest problem, death, in what Jesus did. So have a look at this verse in detail. Verse 16. For God loved the world in this way. Let's have a look at God's love. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You can imagine what's going through Nicodemus' brain at this point. What? God loved the world so much. And by world there, I think he's meaning the whole of, of, of humanity, the people who have turned their back on God. John keeps using uh, the word world as people who aren't on God's side. People who are against God uh, rather than for him. What he's saying is God loved his enemies. The world that wanted nothing to do with him. That said we'd rather scurry around in the dark. We'd rather reject you. We'd rather just live without you God. No offense but I think I'm fine. God loved those people. Which includes you and me. So much. He loved them in this way. That he gave his one and only son. I want you to see the intensity of his love. He loved the world that was against him so much. That he gave his one and only son. I once had a dream. And in the dream, uh, for a number of reasons, uh, Nathaniel, our oldest child, died. Um, for some reason, we'd worked out that was what was going to happen. And we put him, this is weird, okay. We put him in a jar and put him in a fridge. <laughs> Just being honest, that was a dream. I, I woke up in the morning, fully convinced that we'd killed our son and he was dead. I kid you not, it took me days to get over it because there's this sense of like, he's my oldest son, my only son at this point. Why, why do we do this? Why has this happened? What has gone on? And for many of you, that won't just be a dream. You might have lost a sibling. You might have had someone who's come close to death. It might be a parent or a friend. You'll know that burning hurt of losing someone you love and going, why? You'll know the pain that comes from losing that person. And what Jesus is saying is that pain is what God went through. That God loved those who were his enemies so much that he willingly said, yes, you can go forward, Jesus, and die for them. That Jesus willingly died and, and the father went through such an intense pain. Why? Because he loved you. Because he loved the world that much. That he gave the greatest gift anyone could possibly give for all eternity. The Father and the Son and the Spirit have been in perfect relationship. No problems, no relational tension, loving, brilliant. They create humanity. Humanity come and say, God, you're great, but we think we can do it our own way. They created humanity knowing that would happen. And knowing that Jesus would need to die for us. He would need to die in our place for God to remain just and pour out his wrath. And for God to show his love. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes, who trusts, who relies, who depends. That word belief is not just like, oh, shut your eyes and jump. It's saying for anyone who trusts that Jesus' death has paid the price for you, you will have life that lasts forever. Nicodemus, you want to see the kingdom? Nicodemus, you want to enter the, enter the kingdom? person who's been living away from God, who knows our brokenness. You want to see life? You want to remove yourself from the cloud of darkness that is death? Jesus has done it for you. God loved the world so much 
That he gave his only son so that you and I could have eternal life. When you see God's love and what Jesus has done at the cross, that he would do that for us. Do you see how offensive it is to say to God, I don't need Jesus. I don't need your love. I'm fine. Stuff you, God. No, God so loved the world that was against him that he gave his son so that whoever trusts that Jesus died in our place and rose again will have life. Just like those Israelites who looked at the snake that was lifted up, those who look to Jesus and place their life with him as their king, who don't deserve it in any way, shape or form, those who trust him will have life. And what we see is that that life, even that trust itself is given by God. It comes from above. Nicodemus is there and he hears this and he's thinking, what does this mean? But John puts this here in its context so that the reader, you and I, right here, right now, can be caught up, slapped in the face and say, hey, this is not just a general letter to the whole world. Tonight, this is God speaking to you. To us together, yes, but to you individually. To you. This passage, this story is about us. We are the world who has turned our backs on God. We are the broken people who who, who dwell in the darkness. And God is saying to you tonight, stop mucking around in the dark and come to the light. Come and trust my son whom I love. My son who has died in your place. The one whom I've gone through intense pain losing for this sake. The one who took the penalty you deserved. And put your life in his hand and experience life. Experience that cleansing, that, that the spirit coming and living in you and the certain hope of life that lasts forever. What could be better than life that lasts forever? What could possibly be better than that? Why should I believe Jesus? John tells us because he's come from heaven. He's, he's the one who's conquered death for us. He died and was raised to life. He's the only one who faced the, the wrath that we deserve dying in our place. Jesus' death was no accident was the plan from the beginning of time. And you coming to hear this message tonight was no accident either. The God who's in control wants you to hear this and is saying, come, come, come and trust my son. Put your life in his hands and experience life that does not end. So at the end of the letter of this section, this chapter, John says this, chapter 3, verse 36. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Tonight, as you realize God's talking to you, there's a choice that you need to make. Will you accept the love of God? Will you believe in what Jesus has done and experience life? Or will you reject it? And be happy to face the reality of what comes for rejecting the true and living God. I want to be very clear tonight. That at the end of all things, there will only be two lines. One line that goes to eternal life. And the other line that goes to eternal destruction. And the only difference between in, in the people that makes a difference between what line you're in is nothing to do with how good you are or what you've done or what things you've achieved or kind of how socially kind of high you are on the ladder or what, you, what good things you did in your life. We're all broken sinners. The only difference between the people in those two lines is that the people going to, to the line that leads to eternal life stop trusting themselves and believed in Jesus. They came to Jesus and said, I've got nothing to bring. I want to accept what you've done for me. I want to make you my king. Please help me. Please cleanse me. Please give me your spirit so I might be born again and experience that promise of Ezekiel 36 and new life. In the other line, it's people who say, no thanks. The question I want to ask you tonight is, what line do you want to be in? What line do you want to be in? The one that trusts in Jesus and experiences life or the one that says I'm fine God loved the world so much that he gave his son that whoever believes in him 
will have life and will not perish. Friends, that is the greatest message ever. Tonight, come and see that God is talking to you and trust him. Let's pray. Lord God, tonight as we reflect over all you have said, as we think through the reality that Jesus, he is the one that has been raised up and has conquered death, as we reflect on your love shown to us at the cross, we ask that you'd captivate us by Jesus. You'd help us to see who he is and what he's done and let that change the way we live, trusting in him and not ourselves. We pray, Lord, you'd help us to speak that message out to the world around us. We pray you would, by your spirit and through your word, keep wiping us clean, keep making us more and more like your son. Father, tonight for some of us, for the first time, or maybe for coming back, we actually want to step in and trust Jesus. Father, we pray for those of us that are in this case, that you would welcome us in. Thank you so much for the love that you've shown us. Please help us to put our lives in your hands. And we ask, Lord, tonight that you would continue to work in this world. That you would show the people of Auckland, of New Zealand, and the whole globe what you have done for us in Christ, the love that you have shown. And that you would bring people to trusting in you. Pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. All right. So we're going to spend some time answering some questions. Uh, so hopefully you've texted them in. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be real short. Uh, but uh, and I think they'll come up on the screen. Um, oh, can I please share the link to the published doc about Jesus being the most influential person in human history? Uh, sure. Uh, just type Skiena and Ward and uh, who is the greatest. Uh, and you'll get, the, um, you'll get the Cambridge University Press thing. Otherwise, email me. I'm happy to flick that out to you. Uh, it's a whole book. Uh, next question. John 3.13 says, No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Didn't Enoch and Elijah get taken into heaven? Yeah, great question. You see in the Old Testament, some people that were, were lifted up. Enoch walked with God. He didn't die. This so-and-so died, so-and-so died. Then Enoch walked with God. You're like, what happened? God somehow took him up. Um, the key thing here that John is saying about Jesus is that uh, if you're going to know God's view on the world and God's kingdom, you need to have come from God. It's the whole section in this passage that talks about being born of the Spirit and being born of flesh. Uh, if, if you're born of flesh, that means we're human. We can't know the things of God. Uh, it's like saying, um, how can I know the things of... Oh, I won't say that. Um, sorry. I was going to use a, uh, another example. So how can I know things about um, dogs if I'm not a dog? I can't know the insides of dogs' brains. I don't know how they work. If I'm a dog, though, I will know how they work. Uh, and so how can I know the inners of how God works and what God is saying to us? Well, only if you come from him. And so Jesus is the one who has um, descended. And the key thing is he's the only one who's come down to then go up again. Um, no one has ascended into heaven, he's risen, except the one who came from heaven, descended, the son of man. Jesus is saying, I'm the only one that gives God's word. And you're going to keep seeing that uh, as we go through the book of John. Remember, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was God in the beginning. Uh, he's the word who has come from him. And so as we hear Jesus... We hear God. Uh, question, next question. Why uh, is John 3.16 sometimes phrased, God so loved, uh, and sometimes God loved the world in this way? Uh, one seems to express the magnitude of the other, and the other a method of love. Basically, it's just the way that they're uh, applying the words there from the original in the Greek. Um, was it in this way? Or he, the so loved is trying to get the picture of what's going on. Uh, the in this way is kind of probably a little bit more literal in that. God loved the world in this way. Uh, but that's where it's coming from, is that how do we um, translate what's happening there in the original to get the grasp of what John is saying to us? Um, so there you go. Last question. Apparently, they've told me. Um, how would it count as a painful sacrifice for God if he knew his son would be resurrected? Oh, that's a great question, as they all are, you know. No. <laughs> How would it count as a painful sacrifice for God if he knew his son would be resurrected? Um, a couple of things. Um, what Jesus went through in death wasn't just like, oh yeah, that's sweet. What you're seeing is him absorbing God's anger. Um, so what you get in Peter, 1 Peter 3 says, For Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. So what you're seeing there is when Jesus died, he didn't just like, oh, I died, then oh, I'm back alive three days later. Sweet. This is all great. 
What was happening on the cross is that Jesus is absorbing all the right punishment that you and I deserve. For those whom the Father has called, He is absorbing all the sin that we deserve and taking it on Himself and paying the penalty for that. Um, I I use an illustration for this of um, when I was a kid, I used to use a magnifying glass and and burn ants, right? Sorry, if you you love ants. I love ants. But you know how you can do this? You can, you can kind of get a magnifying glass and you can kind of, on a sunny day, and the sun comes down and you can, you can burn paper, you can burn stuff and you can try and, you know, get them on the fence post. That's what I did. There wasn't much to do. And I was the only child. So there you go. Um, so, so you could do that and the magnifying glass would collect the sun's kind of power and kind of focus it on one point. What's happening at the cross is as Jesus dies, he's, he's kind of acting like a magnifying glass. Uh, taking the wrath of the things that people had done wrong from all human history, all the way through to the, the, the front of human history. And God's anger towards people for rejecting Him is being focused like a magnifying glass down on Jesus at that point. I can guarantee you it burned. And so as the Son willingly dies, he, what does He say before He goes? If there is any other way, but not my will, but yours. And so together the Father and the Son go into this knowing what would happen, but knowing He's going to actually take the penalty on us, for us. And there's something in this relationship that has never been broken like that. There's something in this relationship between the Father and the Son that they've never been apart for all of eternity. We don't get that. There's never been an issue relationally between the Father and the Son, but now the Father is pouring out His wrath, the justice that we deserve on the Son, willingly because of that. And so there you're seeing him give the ultimate gift to kind of somehow change what's happened within the the triune God in the way they relate that Jesus would die for us. The creator would die for the creation. At that moment, you've got to go, that burnt. Uh, Now, yes, he, he knew he would rise, but he had to face the wrath of God. And there's no way in the world, as much as I love my family and my friends, that I would face the wrath of God for someone else. Uh, that's death forever. But Jesus somehow, because of who he is, can absorb that in and of himself. And so the pain the father and the son experience is a pain of broken relationship uh, and the wrath being poured out. I don't think I can explain it any more than that. Why don't we pray and thank God for these questions. Keep asking questions. If you've got more, come chat later. It's great to keep unpacking the word and seeing what it's saying to us. But let's pray again. Lord, as we grapple to understand what it is that you have gone through, Father, the pain of Jesus' death in our place and taking the penalty that we deserve, we ask that that would draw us in to see your love ever more deeply and that that would cause us to respond to you as people who trust in the gift of life that comes through Jesus. Help this not be an academic exercise for us. Help it not to be something that just goes by, but something that captures us, that we might place our lives in Jesus' hands. Pray this in his name. Amen.